Well, good morning, River City. My name is Brandon. It is good to be with you this morning. Uh, grateful to join you for worship. Uh, if you are new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you. We'd love to get to know you. I'd love to help you get plugged into the community here at River City. And like Steph said, one of the best ways to do that is to uh, be a part of a small group. So I'd love to invite you to consider that, to uh, invite you into the community like that. It's just a great way to get plugged in, great way to get to know people and grow in your faith. And, and so we'd love to invite you into that. So additionally, I want to invite you to come back next week as well. Uh, we'll be starting a new series, uh, working our way through the gospel of John. And so we're just going to be taking that verse by verse, chapter by chapter, uh, and we're going to be doing that for the better part of five, six months, taking it all the way through Easter. And so we're going to be following that gospel all the way through. I've been studying and prepping the last few weeks, getting ready for that, and I cannot wait to share that with you. There's so much cool stuff in there about uh, John revealing to us who Jesus really is and all that he's done and how there's life in believing in him. And so I can't wait to show that to you over the coming months. But before we get to the gospel of John, uh, we actually need to wrap up our summer series on the attributes of God. And so if you're new or visiting, it might be helpful to know, uh, we've spent the whole summer taking a look at various attributes of God. And we've seen how an attribute, it refers to a quality or a characteristic that belongs to somebody. And what we see in the Bible is that God's attributes, they define and describe who he is, which means that they, they tell us who he is and what he is like. And as we spent time beholding God's attributes this summer, we, we talked about, first of all, we saw how he's a God who is infinite and limitless. That Psalm 145 tells us, it says, great is the Lord, worthy of praise, his greatness no one can fathom. In 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon declares, he says, There is no one like God in heaven, above or below. Even the highest heavens can't contain him. See, unlike us, God's not, God, it's not constrained by time or space or anything else. He's immeasurable. He is unquantifiable. He is uncontainable. And that means he is utterly uncomparable. All that means is that as much as we'd love to understand him completely and for him to kind of fit neatly in our boxes of understanding, the reality is, is that that's just not going to happen. He, he's not a God that we can expect or that we should expect to just be able to figure out completely. And instead, what we see is that he's a God that's beyond the limits of our comprehension. And we saw how this limitless, incomprehensible God is, is triune. We saw in passages like Genesis 1.26 and 1 Peter chapter 1 and 2, they point us to the reality that the, that the one true God, that he exists simultaneously as three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all of whom are fully God and always existed at God and who are characterized by this relationship amongst one another that's full of, of mutual glorification and submission and sacrificial love. And we went on to see how this triune God is self-existent and self-sufficient. Theologians refer to that attribute as his aseity. Psalm chapter 90 says it this way in verse 2, Before the mountains were born, or before you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. In Acts chapter 17, Paul speaks here, he says in verse 24, that the God who made the world and everything in it, he's the Lord of heaven and earth. That he doesn't live in temples built by human hands. That he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives life and breath to everything else. 
You see, God's aseity means that he is entirely self-sufficient. He, he's not dependent on anyone or anything for any reason. God didn't create the universe out of a lack or a need. He, he wasn't looking for love or relationship or community or glory. He had all of those things perfectly in and of himself. Instead, what we see is that God's Trinitarian nature shows that he created in order to share those things with us. And the reason that he is self-sufficient is because he self-exists. He's self-existent. You and I, we're dependent beings, we're contingent beings, but God isn't. He doesn't owe his existence to anyone or anything. And he always was and always will be. He reveals himself to Moses as the great I am. Because God is self-existent and self-sufficient, we saw in the coming weeks how he was immutable. That means he doesn't ever change Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, God declares, I don't change. The writer of Hebrews echoes that in chapter 13 when he talks about Jesus saying that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And those passages, they remind us that God doesn't grow or mature. He doesn't increase or decrease. None of his attributes change or morph or shift. Who he was is who he is, and who he is is who he's going to always be. We saw how that unchanging God is omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent. The God's omnipresence means that he's present everywhere fully, always, at all times. There's nowhere you can go where God is not fully there. Psalm 139, David writes, he says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where could I flee from your presence? He says, If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. Jeremiah 30 or 23, God says, God, uh, who, he says, who can hide in secret places so that I can't see them? Do not I fill heaven and earth? He's omnipresent, but he's also omniscient, we saw. It means that he knows everything. Psalm 147 says that God's understanding, no one has no limit. Hebrews chapter 4 says that nothing in all creation is hidden from his sight. The reality is that because God is present everywhere, he sees everything. And because he sees it all, he knows all of it. From the name of every star in the universe to the number of hairs on your head, the Bible says that God knows every detail of the universe. And he knows it all perfectly and exhaustively and eternally and instantly. And not just the external visible stuff. We see that he sees the internal heart level stuff as well. First Chronicles chapter 28 says, David implores Solomon to worship God with his whole heart and mind. He says it this way, for the Lord searches every heart. He understands every desire and every thought and this all-knowing ever-present god he's all-powerful he's omnipotent jeremiah 32 prophet cries out lord you've made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm nothing is too hard for you talking about jesus the writer of hebrews says that he sustains all things by the word of his power God is infinitely powerful. Nothing is too hard for him. He has nothing that limits his power that, or the exercise of it. He is unrivaled. 
And because he is all those things, we saw in the last couple of weeks that he is the sovereign king of the universe. Resounding throughout the pages of scripture is the proclamation that God rules and reigns over not just some things or most things, but absolutely everything. From the huge and significant to the small and unnoticeable, he is in complete control of all that happens and there's no gaps or limits or interference that prevents it. And if we stopped there with this picture of God that's just utterly transcendent and powerful and all those things, what would happen is we would be, up, we would be left with a God that is just utterly terrifying. But we saw as well that this transcendent God, he reveals himself to be a loving father who is full of compassion. Psalm 103 tells us that the Lord is compassionate gracious. He's slow to anger, abounding in love. He doesn't always accuse. He won't harbor his anger forever. And he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. For it says in verse 13, as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. God's a father. He loves to bless. He loves to be generous to us. And he longs to show grace and compassion, not once we clean ourselves up, but in the midst of our sin and rebellion. And his discipline and his correction in our lives, it is done always for our good. It's never revenge. It's never payback. It's always so that we might grow up in him. And he's a father that you can always trust because we saw that he is the very definition of truth itself. Not only does he not lie, but he himself is the truth. John chapter 14, talking about Jesus, says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And God's truthfulness, it points us to his holiness, his transcendent purity and moral character. Exodus 15 cries out, Among the gods who is like you, Lord, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory. God is completely and utterly without sin. He always does what is right. He never does what is wrong, let alone can tolerate it in his presence. He's not just absolutely good. He is the very standard for what is good. John chapter 1, verse 15, 1 John says that God's light in him, there is no darkness at all. And because he's holy and pure, he's also just. Psalm 89 verse 14 tells us that righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Isaiah 61, the Lord cries out about himself, I love justice. I hate robbery. I hate wrongdoing. God's justice is an outworking of his holiness. Because God is holy, because he's entirely pure and good, that he isn't neutral towards sin and evil. Instead, he, whether it's done to us or by us, he stands opposed to it. He punishes evil and wrongdoing, and he lifts up the righteous and the oppressed. And even though we don't always get to see God's justice worked out, we can be confident that he is an impartial judge, and in the end, all things will be set right. 
And I go over all of that. We spent the whole summer working through all these attributes of God, not because it's really important for you guys to have a robust theological vocabulary, right? So you can like wow people with your amazing words that you know, like aseity and omnipotence and whatever it is. Like, that's not the point. The point is the reason why we spent the whole summer going over all of that stuff is because what you believe, especially what you believe about God, it always changes what you do. What you believe, it always changes what you do. Your behaviors, they are, always, they are the tangible expression of your beliefs. And so the reality is that when our actions and attitudes and perspectives, when those things are out of line with God and His Word, ultimately that's because on some level we either don't know, we've forgotten, or we've refused to believe something that is true about God. And so the question I want to ask this morning as we wrap up our series, as we wrap up our time together thinking about God's attributes, is simply this. What does the truth, or where does the truth about who God is and what He's like still need to sink into your heart? Where does the truth about who he is and what he's like need to keep sinking into your heart? Where do you need to believe the truth about him so that you might be transformed in your life? And throughout our series, what we've done is we've taken a look at an attribute and seen how that changes us. But what I want to do this morning is go in the reverse direction. And I want to help us to see the ways in which we worship and serve things other than God, the way that the solution to those problems is that we might behold and believe the truth about who He really is. I'll just be honest with you as well, as we, before we dive into our time this morning, my notes this morning are terrible. Uh, I spent my head banging my. I spent the week banging my head against the wall of this sermon this week, and so if there's anything that helpful that comes from this, you can know for sure that that was God's grace to you this morning. But my hope is that we might see God as the not just the one who is worthy of our worship, but as the true and better one of our worship. So, let's pray, and then we'll we'll dive into it this week. God, thanks for our time together this morning. Thanks for your word. Thinks that the reality is, is that like you use terrible sermons all the time to make much of you. And I pray, God, in the midst of uh, my inadequacies this morning, that you would be seen as sufficient. I pray that we might see you, God, as the one who is worthy of our worship and the one whom, when we worship you, it, it roots out all the other things in our heart. And so we need you for that, God. Uh, I don't have any power or ability to make that happen, that's for sure. And so I pray that you'd use it for good uh, as we study you this morning, we pray. Amen. Well, um, I don't know if any of you have ever been to the Grand Canyon. Uh, one winter, I went with a friend of mine. Uh, his landlord was a snowbird in Arizona, and she paid us to drive her car down to her. And so, uh, so I don't know how that worked. It was like one of those miracle things you don't ask too many questions about, right? But I remember we were driving down, and, and we went to the Grand Canyon. And I'd always seen pictures of the Grand Canyon. And, and I was always just like, eh, whatever, seems like a big hole. You know, that's cool, I guess, right? But my friend was like, no, we got to go, we got to go see this, you know, while we're, while, the, while we're all the way out here. And so I remember we were starting to drive around, kind of getting into the place, and we started to hike down into the Grand Canyon. And I remember looking back at my, the, at the photos I took, and it was like the same picture, less like three feet apart for like four miles, right? Because what happened is, is, is 
every time I would look around, I was just awestruck by like the beauty of what was there. The pictures do not do it justice. The, the, the views were breathtaking. I was just like captivated by this, by this place. And as my friend and I were walking down this hike, what we were talking about with one another is just like how the reality of how incredible the Grand Canyon was, it was pointing us back to God. It was this reminder of his power and his authority. And it was just like drove us to worship as we saw this incredible thing as part of his creation. And the reality is, is that the same thing should be true when we behold God's attributes. You see, beholding and believing in the truth about who God is and what he's like, that is meant to lead us to worship. Jen Wilkin, she writes it this way. She says, the depths of the riches and the wisdom of knowledge of God, they should bring us to our knees. His unsearchable judgments, his inscrutable ways, they should inspire a right reverence for us to see a God who is free of limits, who is altogether transcendent. It begins to rightly orient us as worshipers. See, the reality is that the, the primary outworking of our study this summer is we've taken a look at God's attributes. The primary outworking is that we should worship God. That's at the very heart of what we should be our response as we see him for who he really is. And not just with songs of praise to him or about him, but with lives that are lived in devotion to him. You see, worship isn't ultimately about songs or music. It's about allegiance. It's about dedicating our hearts to him. And, and so worship is about giving something more than, it's about giving someone or something your supreme devotion, your ultimate allegiance, your primary affection. And the problem is, is that instead of worshiping the true God, we worship and serve all kinds of other things. And when we worship something that isn't God, that's what the Bible describes as idolatry, as an idol. And we can worship all kinds of things. We worship other people, we worship family or parents or kids or spouses or boyfriends or girlfriends. We allow people to be the controlling influence in our life, the thing of whom matters the most. It can be things like money or jobs or houses or possessions or hobbies. It can be social status or political influence or personal autonomy. The list is endless. But if you've been around River City for very long, what you know is that we talk about those things as surface idols. They're the things that are on the surface of our lives, but underneath and behind all of that stuff are these heart-level desires for one of four things or a combination of these. It's a desire for power, control, comfort, or approval. And we refer to those things as source idols. The idol of power is, when we worship the idol of power, the thing that we're functionally worshiping, the thing that's controlling our lives is, is this desire for authority and influence over other people and over other situations. With control, it's this desire to have autonomy and, and to have certainty over all the variables in our lives so that we can do what we want, when we want, how we want to do it. With comfort, the controlling desire in our hearts is, is this longing for freedom and pleasure. It's this desire to escape the responsibilities and the stresses that we find around us. And with the idol of approval, it's this longing that we have that controls us, a longing to be loved and accepted or respected by certain people or groups or whatever it might be. And the reality is, is that if we want to be a people that worship God, we need to learn to how to start to identify some of the idols in our lives that we worship instead of Him. 
If it's power, we see that we're often convinced that our ideas or that our, if our political party would win out, then everything would be fine, everything would work out as it, as it should be, or that if those things don't happen, that everything's going to be ruined. We often find that anger is the reaction that we have when our authority or influence is challenged when we worship the idol of power. Maybe you're worshiping comfort. The thing you find yourself longing for most is to escape the pressure and stress of the life and responsibilities you have. And you're constantly thinking about the next next distraction that can keep you uh, entertained for a certain amount of time. And you think if you had just a little bit more money or a little bigger house or a little bit better job that you'd finally be satisfied, that you'd finally be happy. And you're unwilling to talk about your faith with others because you just don't want to be uncomfortable. Or maybe you worship control and you feel this ever, just this ever, never-ending need to have control and certainty about all the variables in your life. And without that, you can't ever make a step or ne- take a next decision. And you refuse to take spiritual risk with your friends or your neighbors because you're just not sure how they're going to respond. And it's a variable you can't control. And maybe we worship approval. We're consumed by thinking about what other people think about us, our family, our friends, our neighbors, our bosses. We find ourselves doing things just because we think it's what other people want us to do or because we think it'll cause them to look favorably on us. And we're unwilling to take risks for God and to stand up for Him because we're concerned primarily about what other people think about us. The reality is is that if we're going to worship God, we need to learn how to start identifying the other things besides Him that that we worship. But more than that, what we need to learn how to do is to learn how to replace the truth about who God is, the one who's actually worthy of our worship, in place of the lies that we're believing that lead us to worship power and control and comfort and approval. You see, when we worship the idol of power, Sometimes the truth we need to keep coming back to and beholding and believing is the truth about God's omnipotence, His all-powerfulness. Oftentimes we trust and rely on our own power and our own strength, but not only do we quickly run into the limits of that thing, we tend to use our power and our influence for our own means and our own ends. And we use it with a imperfect ways that just leads to pride and others feeling used. But if we'll choose to believe and behold in a God who himself is all-powerful, then what happens is you get to trust his perfect power. And you get to rest in his authority to bring about his purposes, which are better than yours. And you can lay down your own power and pursue to that, and instead choose to love and serve others instead of bringing about your own ends. God's sovereignty, His rule and reign, His exercise of His authority, His ability to perfectly bring about His purposes, it frees you from the need to bring about your own. Instead of trying to get other people to surrender to your plan and will, you get to instead surrender to His. And there's a freedom and a life there that comes nowhere else. Because what you realize is that the God of the universe, whose sovereign authority and power brings about his purposes, is also a good father. Who is not using his power to bring about his own means or his own ends, but is using it to bring about the good of those that he loves. And so you can give up the worship of power because you can trust his 
power and sovereignty and fatherly love. As well, the truth about God, it uproots our worship of control. God's sovereignty helps us believing and beholding it. It helps us with the idol of control because the reality is is that whether you feel like you're in control of situations or whether you feel totally out of control, he's always in control. And when you embrace his sovereignty, it lets you give over this unending list of things you are worried and fearful about back to him. And when you feel out of control, you get to this reminder that the great sovereign king of the universe is never out of control. And he's not just in control, but that he knows everything. He sees all of the variables that you cannot see. All of the things you endlessly spend worrying about and needing to have certainty over, he sees the past and present and future of it. He sees how all of the variables work. He sees how they all work together. And he sees where things will end. And he is the one who knows it all. And because he holds all the knowledge, you don't have to. And he's not just all-knowing and sovereign. He is present everywhere. And so we feel the need oftentimes when we worship control to be present everywhere because it's only when we're able to be present that, that we're able to have control over the situations in our lives. But God's omnipresence is this reminder that he is the one who is present everywhere and it's his presence that brings about the right ends, not your own. And that frees you His omnipresence, it frees you to be present where he has put you and to rest in his present control of everything, everywhere. And what you can know for sure as well is that he doesn't change. Instead of looking, what happens is when we worship control all the time, what happens is we look to things to be the unchanging thing in our lives. And we need people or situations or jobs or circumstances. We need those things to be unchanging and immovable when we worship control. But the reality is that the one thing that never changes is God himself. And when you see him as the immutable, unchanging one, then what happens is you can give up looking to all those other things to be unchanging and you can let him be the foundation that you are longing for. The sure thing that never moves and never shifts and is always dependable. The thing you can count on never to change. And that frees you. It frees you to worship him instead of worshiping control. For others of you, maybe you're like me and you are tempted to worship the idol of comfort. And the reality is that God's aseity, his self-sufficiency and his self-existence, what they point us to is this reality that he's not just the source of all things, but that he's the goal of everything in the first place. And what that means is that our primary purpose is not self-gratification and self-glorification, but it's worship. The thing we're made for is not to please ourselves, but it's to please him. It's not to glorify ourselves, but to glorify him. And what that also means is that we are stewards and not owners of all that we have. And God's aseity is this reminder that we need to keep coming back to that he is the creator and sustainer of everything, that everything is his, and that all we are and all we have is not for us. 
but it's been entrusted to us. They're His things. God's holiness as well helps to uproot the idol of comfort in our lives. We see that He is utterly pure and holy and blameless. And what it leads us to do is to see our sin seriously. We often live for the pleasures of this world. We are consumed by them and we are taken hold of them by them. And what happens is instead of seeing them for the evil that it really is, we minimize those things. But God's holiness is this reminder of his transcendent purity. And it's the reminder for us that our lives are meant that we might be set apart, not just from the world, but set apart for him and for his good purposes. And the truth about God, it also uproots the idol of approval in our lives. So often we are ruled we are ruled by the need for others, the, the view of others have of us. We are ruled by the opinions of others. And what happens is if you keep coming back to this reminder that God, the God of the universe, is a good and loving Father and that His approval of you is rooted in His choice to love and direct His, his love towards you, then what happens is, is that, and what you see is that His opinion of you is high and secure. And if the father that you long for, the great king of the universe, has a high and secure opinion of you, that frees you from the need to care about what other people think. And it enables you to receive criticism and to endure a loss of, of approval of friends and coworkers and family because you have his approval. And remembering his omniscience, his all-knowingness, means that you can be sure that his approval of you was not based on partial information. You can be confident he's not going to find something out about you that's going to cause him to revoke his love for you. No, God saw all of you, your past and your present and your future. He is outside of time and he commits himself to you eternally. You are both completely known and completely loved. And because God is immutable, because he never changes, you can be confident that what he has said about you will never change. That you are his beloved children, that you are cherished and delighted in by him. And God's aseity, his self-sufficiency, is this reminder that you are free to love and serve him because he doesn't need you at all. You are not holding him up, and you cannot let him down. Instead, you are graciously invited into his eternal purposes. And so there's life for you in serving him. It's not this weight and burden you have, because he is self-sufficient. He invites you in, and he doesn't need you, and there's life and joy there. You see, the reality is, is that we worship and serve things that aren't worthy of our worship. The idols of power and comfort and control and approval, all the surface stuff on top of it, it never actually satisfies. It doesn't give you the thing you are longing for. It always leaves you wanting. And so the reality is, is that you can't just stop worshiping idols you have to replace it with a new worship of God. You can't just 
The thing God created us to be as worshipers, it is the one thing you and I can never stop doing. And so the only way to start worshiping, to stop worshiping idols, is to start worshiping the one true God. You see, the reality is, is what we need is this new overwhelming desire of something that really satisfies Proverbs chapter 13, it says that that hope deferred, it makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. Proverbs is talking about it, it says how when we worship things that are idols, when we worship things that aren't God, it makes our hearts sick. They never satisfy, they always fail, they always let us down, they leave us longing, and yet there is one kind of desire, there is one object of our worship, there is one supreme affection that gives life like nothing else does. I've been prepping this past week as for our study in the Gospel of John, and what you find at the end of John's Gospel, at the very end, he says that the reason he writes everything that he's written is so that we might believe that Jesus is God, and he says, and that in believing in him, you might have life. You see, we run after all kinds of idols thinking that they give life, but they never can. And it's only when we will behold and believe in the truth about God as made known to us in Jesus that will have a right object of worship that really satisfies and that drives out the longing that we have for everything else. There's this old hymn I always loved singing growing up. The chorus goes this way. It says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. That's been my prayer for you this summer. That as we look full in the face of the God of the universe, that we, that we, that the things of earth would grow strangely dim. That the idols we worship, that the things we worship that aren't Him, that we would see them as the worthless things they really are. And that in beholding him, his glory, his grace, that we would be full of worship for him. That's been my prayer for you. And the reality is, is that the only way you get to behold him is because he chooses to reveal himself to us, to make himself known. And he does that chiefly in the person and the work of Jesus and that's what we're celebrating every week when we take communion together. We're reminding ourselves about the person and the work of Jesus, how he reveals perfectly the Father to us, and not just reveals him to us, he's the one who redeems us so that we might have a right relationship with him. And so communion is not something that makes you right with God, and it doesn't save you, and it doesn't, say, it doesn't change your status or your standing with God. Instead, it's this chance for us to remind ourselves about who God has proved himself to be. So that in reminding ourselves of all that he's done and who he is, we might be full of a love and a gratitude for him that overflows in a life of worship for him. And so I would encourage you as we celebrate, as we sing, as we sing about the gospel and as we remember the person, the work of Jesus, as we remind ourselves about the God that we worship in song, I want to encourage you, go back, go back and take communion. 
There's a table on the left and on the right in the back, and you can dip the bread in the juice as a reminder of Jesus' body and blood that have been broken and shed for you so that you might not just know the true God, but that you might have a relationship with Him, a right relationship with Him. So if you put your faith in Jesus, I want to encourage you, go back to our time of communion. But if you're here this morning and you're still figuring out who Jesus is to you and what it means to follow Him, and if worshiping Him is the thing you want to do in the first place, then I just want you to know how welcome you are here and how welcome your questions are and your process is. But I want to encourage you as well, hold off on taking communion. God is not after empty religious rituals and going through the motions. He's after a heart that worships Him supremely. That is devoted to Him. That sees Him as our chief affection. As we take communion this morning, as we sing, I want to encourage you, wherever you're at, talk with God this morning. Ask Him to give you eyes so that you can see the things that you worship that aren't Him. Ask Him to help you to see not just the surface stuff, but to see the source underneath it. Ask Him to help you to give, give you eyes to see the things you are longing for, the things you are devoting yourself to that aren't worthy of it. But more than that, ask Him to help you to see Him for who He really is. Ask you to help Him to see His glory and His goodness his power and authority and love. Ask, ask him to help you see him rightly so that in beholding him, you might believe the truth about him and become the people he's made you to be. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful for you and for our time together in your word and this summer as we have taken a look at your attributes. God, we are so grateful that as we look to you, God, we don't just look at a God who's beyond our comprehension, but a God who has made himself known to us. And so we ask, God, that you might continue to make yourself known to us more fully. Help us to see you, Jesus, for who you really are, and to love you for it. God, we cannot do that on our own. We cannot do it out of our own will or longing. God, we need you to be the one who does it in us. And so we pray, King Jesus, that you might help us to see you as the, not only the true and worthy object of our worship, but as the one who is captivating our hearts. We need you for it all. We pray that you do it for our good and for your glory. Amen.